0: we give you glory and honor and praise right now, today, this morning for what you have done and who you are. You are the cornerstone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning, church. Yeah. Isn't that song awesome? Like, man, it just gets me going. Well, here we believe that the Bible changes lives. And I don't mean just knowing Bible trivia or Bible stories. I mean, the Bible has the power to radically, dramatically change lives. And I know that's not the... The popular way of thinking these days in our culture, I I know the Bible has come under attack, increasingly so in recent years. I know the questions, the doubts, the challenges, the accusations against the Bible. I once held those myself before I was following Jesus. Can you really trust the Bible? Do you actually believe the Bible? I mean, some of the stories in the Bible seem rather outlandish, outdated, irrelevant, a little patriarchal. Little closed-minded, mythical, fictional, unreliable, out of touch. I mean, really, can we trust the Bible? Now, we could spend all of our time today refuting all of those claims, addressing all of those statements. We, we could do that. We, we could look at the remarkable historical accuracy of the Bible the extra biblical evidence, the, the manuscript evidence, for the copies, the fragment pieces that we have, and the number of them that date all the way back to original manuscripts or times close to the original writings of the Bible, and, and how there's more evidence for the historical reliability and accuracy of the Bible than for most any other book ever, especially of that age. We we could look at all the other historical evidence. We we could just look at the internal consistency of the Bible, how the Bible is one clear theme from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation, and it holds consistent within itself, non-contradictory. We could look at the external evidence, that historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, that the more we dig into archaeology, we find support and validity for the things the Bible says, that things really did happen the way the Bible seems to say they did. We could look at the anthropological evidence, what the Bible says about humans and humankind matches up with what we see throughout all of history. We we could dig into all those things. We could look at the timeless wisdom and advice that the Bible offers, things that are still relevant today, Uh, advice for money and relationships and conflict resolution and justice and mercy, and we could see how they hold up and how the wisdom of Scripture is timeless, not dated. We, We could look at those things. We could look at how the Bible is the leading historical document for ideas of justice and mercy, how it was through the Bible and from the Bible and from Jesus himself especially that we see justice and mercy, that we see the defense and the protection of women and children, of the alien and the stranger, of the outcast and the downtrodden. It was biblical ideology that gave rise to, to orphanages and schools and hospitals. We could look at just how the Bible is helpful. The, how the research indicates that those who engage the Bible four or more times a week have lower levels of depression, anxiety, of conflict, of stress. Those who engage it at that level have higher levels of joy, of satisfaction, of generosity, of contentment. They have stronger, longer, healthier relationships. They live longer, healthier, more satisfied, more contentedly. We could spend our morning doing all that, but that won't change your life. It might change your mind, but it won't necessarily change your life, though I believe the Bible does change lives. It really does. In last week's message, we kicked off our series on restore taking a look in part at the restoration movement the church movement that gave rise to our church and churches like us restoring new testament principles and unity and a strong stance on scripture last week we began looking at we looked at some of the the distinctives the the non-negotiable operating principles of our church movement and one of them being this that where the bible speaks we speak but where the bible is silent we are silent which means where the Bible speaks to things, what it says in, in certain spots, we can speak confidently and courageously on. When, when the Bible clearly addresses a topic, issues of faith, of salvation, we can speak to that, issues of ethics and integrity. We, we can speak to those things unequivocally. We, we have confidence in those. Because when the Bible speaks, we can speak to those things. But on areas that the Bible doesn't necessarily address specifically, we can speak confidently with biblical principle. The Bible gives us principles to address all areas of life. So we can speak with confidence on biblical principle into every area, but on those areas where the Bible doesn't exactly address it exactly, we need to protect ourselves, guard against a rigid dogmatism, and allow some room for Freedom. But unfortunately, this idea where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. Not a lot of people hold to that these days, not even in our movement. in fact, it seems more people, more and more and more, hold to the stance of just not allowing the Bible to speak into our lives much at all. It's almost as though we've allowed the Bible to go silent. You know, it's unfortunate that the Bible is not accessed as much these days. About 90% of Americans own a Bible, but that doesn't mean they engage it. And we know that the number of people who regularly turn to the Bible is not, well, even the number of people who occasionally turn to the Bible, they say about half the people who own the Bible occasionally turn there, but that number is decreasing. Fewer still regularly access it on a weekly basis, and fewer still would say they turn to it often for wisdom and direction for how to live their life. So the sad part of that is that the Bible has become more accessible, and yet we've accessed it less. The Bible has become increasingly accessible throughout the centuries, throughout the decades, and and in recent years, the Bible is more accessible now than it's ever been, and it is neglected as much as it's ever been. It wasn't until Gutenberg's printing press in the 1440s that the Bible became more accessible to the common person. It wasn't until many years, decades, even a century after that, that most people could actually say they owned a Bible. And because of that, the Bible was viewed as valuable. It was cherished. It was sought after. It was hard to come by. For the first 1,500 years of our faith, it's not like everybody had the scrolls of the Bible written up and tucked away in the corner of their house. They just didn't have access to all that. And so once it became accessible, people chased after it, seeking after it. It was valuable. But then somewhere along the lines, the more accessible it became, the more we tended to just dismiss it. It seems as though there's a neglect, a loss of reverence for the Bible, as well as for the God who it speaks of and the God who authored it. And increasing accessibility has led to a decreased appreciation. You know, when we disengage from the word of God, when we allow these things to happen, we drift from God and his plan. I mean, if we're not staying in touch with the Bible, how do we know what God would want for us? It becomes a game of feelings at that point. Now, spiritual drift is natural. The the cultural currents the distractions of our world, the challenges of life, those things can and will move us away from God, from his word, from his plan, if we allow them to. Unless we push against those things and actively choose to pursue God and engage in his word, we will drift from God. We know that. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible acknowledges that. The authors of the Bible point this out. One of the things that's so appealing to me is that the heroes of the Bible really aren't that heroic, save for one, Jesus. (laughs) He's really the only hero in there. The others are pretty flawed people. Some of them, it's just not pretty at all. They're just flawed people. (laughs) I resonate with that. I'm kind of one of those people. And one of the things that we see is that even in the pages of Scripture, people will walk away from God because of the distractions of the world. They'll choose to disengage and go their own way. You know, spiritual drift is natural. So sometimes... What aids the spiritual drift is when life seems to be going well, when, when we have seasons of affluence, when we're comfortable, when life is okay, we seem to think this false belief that, well, I'm good, I don't necessarily need God's word, I don't need his guidance, I don't need God's influence, God, I got this, I don't need you, I, I actually prefer my way over yours, my way seems to be better, it's more... It's more comfortable. God, I like my thoughts. I like the way that I do things. And, and your way seems to be stuffy and dated and old and, and archaic. And it, it just, I, God, I'm good. But yet we see in the pages of Scripture that this happens. And there's a clear warning against us. When God was leading his people from Egypt, then through the desert into the land of Canaan, into the land flowing with milk and honey, which some people say, well, that's kind of dated, but I don't know, I love honey and I love milk. You add a little caramel and chocolate to it. Man, we got our place, like we got ourselves a place to go, right? Like this is where God is taking them. If God were writing it in our language today, he'd say, it's a land flowing with all the sweets that, you're, that you want to taste man, Fitzy. So we're, we're moving towards that, right? He's, he's leading his people into this great space, this place for them. But he tells them, when you get there, be careful not to forget me. Because you're going to get to a place where the homes are nice and the vineyards are ripe and you got all that you need to drink and it's all right there. You're not going to have to dig the wells and you're not going to have to build the homes or plant the vineyards. You're just taking it over. And don't forget me. Because when you get to a situation like that, your tendency is to think, we're good, we don't need God anymore. And that's exactly what happens. When we have a season of affluence, we tend to forget God. And so scripture even warns us in itself about this. This was kind of what Paul was getting at when he said this, when he penned these words to his understudy, Timothy. He said, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. It seems like that time is here. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase After myths, I think we're there. You know, there are many churches that have abandoned clear doctrine and strong biblical teaching. They've neglected the truth of the word and instead chasing the whims of the world, trying to appeal to the masses and appeal to everybody. They actually appeal to no one. And that certainly does not appeal to God. And that will not be us, not now, not ever, We will stand on the unchanging truth of God's word now and always because that's who we are as a church. But this is where they were going. This is where we've become. You know, everyone is a disciple of someone or something. Everyone is being discipled, being a student, being made to look in the image of someone, something. It's just a matter of whom is discipling you. Who's discipling you? Is it social media? Is it the peer influencers? Is it the cultural trendsetters, the think tanks, the newest ideologies that allow us just to be us, that allow us the freedom to just be whoever you want to be and don't worry about the consequences? Being discipled by the news, choose your channel, by the loudest voice, or are you being discipled by God's word, allowing his word to lead you and guide you? As a culture, we've not made staying in God's Word much of a priority, and that has influenced the church. Maybe it's that too many of us are too busy or too distracted. I think that's just too easy of an excuse. For some, I know that it's that the Bible seems too overwhelming or too intimidating. I mean, it is a book written by several different authors in a couple of different languages, three actually, and spans fifteen hundred years, different time, different place, different way of doing things. There's a historical gap, a language gap, a culture gap, a geographic gap, a time gap. And, and maybe it's just you don't know where to begin or how to begin or not sure how to read it. I get that. I was there once. Sometimes still am. Maybe, maybe it's that you're angry that God hasn't answered your prayers the way you thought he should. Maybe he hasn't provided for you the way you expected that he would. Maybe, maybe it's that you have guilt or shame. You know the secrets of your own sin. And you think that God does not want anything to do with somebody. like, there's no way that the God of the years, if he's a holy God, he, I don't think he's wanting to interact with me, I get that. Maybe it's that you really enjoy indulging in your sin, you, you, you like what you're doing and you know that God doesn't approve and so there's this shame-guilt thing. You, you wanna do that and, and so you go to God less because you know that there's just incongruency there. Maybe it's that you face some confusion or maybe even disillusionment over those who say they are people of the word, people of the Bible and yet you see the way they live and you say, if that's what living for God looks like, I don't know that I want any part of that. It just doesn't seem to measure up. I get that. I get all that. I've been there. And and yet, despite all of those things, the Bible still changes lives. It it does. It, It radically, dramatically can change our lives. You know, Bible engagement is one of the top factors, one of the top indicators of a growing, healthy, vibrant spiritual maturity. To engage the Bible is one of the top ways to grow in faith. And what we see from research is research indicates that if a person engages the Bible four or more times a week, it radically changes their life. So, one of the things I love about Rooted. Rooted is a 10-week experience. Yeah, we got some Rooted peeps out here, man. So Rooted's kicking off this week, but if you've not participated, it's not too late to sign up. It's worth it, trust me. One of the things I love about Rooted is it gives us this this daily rhythm of getting into God's Word, studying it, reading it, listening to it, meditating on it, thinking on it, memorizing it, praying over it, journaling And it gives us this habit, it helps form a habit of engaging God's word, a lifelong habit and rhythm. And it gives us tools that even if at times we get a little bit out of rhythm on how to get back in rhythm, and we don't just come and study, read it alone, but we do it in community the way God intended it to be. If you've not participated in Rooted, sign up before you leave today. You need to, it's worth it. It will change your life. But but here's a crazy thing that research has shown us. Those who engage the Bible just three times or less each week, the Bible will influence them, it will shape them, kind of. But there's something that happens between the third engagement and the fourth engagement with the word. That this chasm is like the difference between East and West, between North Pole and South Pole. That there's something like the fourth engagement of the week is like the tipping point. That there's something that happens with those who engage the Bible four or more times a week that their lives are radically, dramatically shaped by the Word. Something that happens with four engagements or more that doesn't happen with three or less. Now, while I don't know all the psychology of it, and I don't know all the theology of it, and I'm not sure anybody can really access why that's the case, what we do know is this, and it just makes sense, that those who engage the Bible most resist at least. And it just makes sense. The more you engage it, the the people who engage the Bible most who are going to it four or five, six, seven times or more a week are shaped by it, because the more you get into it, the more it gets into you, and you just simply allow Scripture to lead you, to shape you, to guide you, to direct you. The greater the engagement, the more likely you are to apply it, and obviously when you apply it, it changes your life. There's something that happens with engaging the Bible regularly and often. So here's what Bible engagement looks like. It means we read the Bible, and I should have Qualified this. I should have explained that a little bit more on the screen. Reading the Bible. Is it just like reading? Because we can come to a text and read the text. You know, sometimes I read an instruction. Not very often. I'm going to be honest. When on the occasion I read an instruction manual, there's usually so much jargon. I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm reading anyway. I'm just going to figure this thing out on my own. (laughs) There were times as a student... I remember before biology finally clicked for me, which was way late in the game, like I could do math and English and other stuff, but biology, man, I just struggled with some of that stuff. And I would read the textbook, and for whatever reason, I was in advanced biology, and I had no clue what I was doing. I'd like read the chapter, and I'm like, I got no clue what I just read. I'm dead in the water for this test, right? You read something, it's more than reading, it's studying, it's learning, it's listening, it's engaging, it's it's mulling it over. Because we know that there are barriers, historical, geographical, language, cultural, on and on, and so we sometimes are helped by some extra biblical resources that help us study it a little bit more. So we study the Bible, but we also come to the Bible to listen to the Bible. Like we mentioned a moment ago, for a long time it's not like most people had their own copy of the Bible. That's a relatively new invention. When the original texts of the Bible were written, they were written to be read out loud and heard. That's part of the reason we come together on Sundays here, so we hear God's word read portions of it, but that's not enough. We gotta do that in other settings at home and with friends and in groups, and even on our own listening to the Bible read to us. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible app, because at any time I have the Bible on my phone, and by the way, I would encourage you to have a translation of the Bible that's easy for you to understand. And you didn't know that a digital copy of the Bible is not a lesser copy than a written copy. It's not like it doesn't count. It does. And one of the things, because you can mark it up, and you can take your notes, or you can save your notes. In fact, and I'm a print kind of guy. I'm, I'm like a young dinosaur. I'm just going to admit that. But my digital stuff is a whole lot easier for me to access than all my old written files on the Bible. But one of the things I love about the Bible app is I can hit the play button and listen to the Bible. And when you listen to it, it registers in a different part of your brain and you engage it differently. And so I encourage you to listen to the Bible. And then we meditate on passages of the Bible. Meditation means we think. on it. It's not like Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation for those Eastern religions means you empty everything, right? You think about nothing, empty your mind and empty your thoughts, and that's not what we're chasing. Biblical, scriptural, Christian meditation means we fill our minds up with the word of God. We think on passages and verses or even just one word of his word, and we let it fill us. You might say, yeah, but I'm not sure how to meditate. Oh, you do. Like anybody in here, oh, hold on, I'm not going to ask this that way. Um, All right, before I ask this question, Do not look at the person sitting next to you when you answer, okay? Anybody know somebody who worries? Anybody know a worrier? Yeah, yeah, All right, I'm gonna call somebody in my life out, and and she knows this, right? Mama, I know you're watching, and it's okay because we've had the conversation. My mom is an expert worry. Like, she could win the worry championships, okay? This woman can worry. To be fair, she has four kids. We have helped her worry over the years. Now, here's all worry is, right? Worry is you take a negative thought, a negative idea, a possibility, and you just think on it again and again and again and again and again. And you can't stop thinking, you just keep thinking on it, mull it over, and you wrestle with it, and you dwell on it, and it shapes you negatively, right? Worry is never good, it creates stress and anxiety and frustration and ugh. So just flip that. Take a word, a verse, a passage, an idea from scripture, and pretend you're worrying about it. Just think on it again and again and again and again and mull it over and give thought to it and wrestle with it and let it just roll around in your brain and what you'll find is it shapes you, but positively. That's really all Christian meditation is. It's letting God's word tumble around inside of you and have its way in you to shape you. Now, one more little tidbit of research here. Research indicates that One of the top indicators for young people, teens especially, to avoid negative behavior, dangerous activities, and to have a wholesome self-image, not just in a worldly sense, but to see themselves as created by a loving God, made in his image. That Bible engagement is one of the top factors that helps our teens do that. So mom, dad, guardians, if you want your kid, To avoid negative behavior, dangerous activity, get them into the Word. You want your kid to develop positive, strong character, get them into the Word. And mom, dad, you want your kid to get into the Word, invite them to join you there. Because the number one indicator for whether our students, whether our kids are going to get into God's Word is if they see mom and dad do it. So let's invite our kids to join us there. But to engage the Bible, to really engage it, means we got to shift the way we think about it. Too often, we come to the Bible, treat it like it's a textbook, like it's something that we study in the same way we would study for a test or an exam, or we choose the parts we want to learn, or we choose the parts that we like, and we kind of dismiss the others. We come to it like a self-help book, and we say, well, I don't really like that. Oh, you know, or we'll ask the question, well, what does that mean to you? Which, by the way, don't ever ask that question, because meaning is not fluid. Meaning doesn't change. Meaning is the same always. The the meaning of the passage of the text is the intended meaning of the author. You can't change the intent. You can't change what it means. Significance is relative. Significance is however that is significant to you. So you could say, it's fair to say, well, this is, Significant to me or it's not, and here's why and how. But you can't change the meaning. Let me give you an example. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in, church, in chapter five, and he didn't have chapters and verses, we added them later, but when he wrote, and we know it's chapter five of his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, husbands, love your wives in the same way Christ loved the church, surrendering yourself to her, dying for her, not mean like go out and die, but it means die to yourself, die to your own wants and needs and preferences and priorities, and prioritize your wife, prioritize your kids. It comes right after that. He says, and prioritize Christ. You die to yourself and now you're serving them. This This is what this means. This is what it means for husbands to submit to their wives, by the way, which we find in the passage right before this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, this is your submission to your wife as you die in that way. This is what he's getting at. The meaning does not change no matter what. Significance, however, like that meaning always existed whenever I read it. But back on on June 10th, 2000, a little over 22 years ago, the significance of that passage changed dramatically for me when I went from being fiance to husband. (laughs) It got increasingly significant, and it has continued to get more and more significant every day since. Sometimes I'm reminded of how significant it should be for me, always in a beautiful, loving, gentle way. You can't change the meaning of the text, but the significance of that passage may change for you. See, we have to surrender ourselves to this. Instead of coming to it like we have control over it, we need to surrender and allow it to have some control over us, to shape us, to have its way with us, not just us having our way with that. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, the message of the cross. Now, we're going to come back to this. We might better translate this word as word. The, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Now we gotta get to a little bit of the Greek here, right? English is good, you can trust your Bible, but sometimes we gotta get underneath and study a little bit more to understand it a little bit better. So, the power of God, let me give you a Greek word, because the word for power there is dynamos. Everybody say dynamos. Okay. Think about this word. This is the word where we get dynamite from, all right? It's power. Y'all have like wet dynamite, right? Say dynamos. There you go. You got a little more power. So it's this explosive, right? Like this is the explosive power of God that blows up all the sin stuff in our life and shakes us and blows off those chains, and then becomes fuel for our journey towards Jesus, right? Like there's a dynamic power of God. It's active, it's moving. It doesn't just sit still. It's dynamic. This is the power of God. But the word of God, it says the message of the cross, no, the word of the cross is foolish, to those headed for destruction, but it's life, it's power for those who are being saved. Let me give you another Greek word, and this is one of the words for word, logos. Now, here's the challenge, is the Greeks had different words for word, three primary words for word, and this is where this gets a little challenging, because if we read it with the wrong understanding of what word means, we can miss the meaning, and then that affects significance for us. It's kind of like this. There was a girl who was having a really bad day. The mom knew. The mom shoots her a text message and says, I'm sorry you're having such a terrible day, sweetie. LOL. And to the daughter who received that, who had been in a little scuffle with her mom a few days before, thought, man, that's a pretty low dig of mom to be laughing out loud about my pain. But the mom who was actually trying to mend this thought it was a pretty sweet moment to say, lots of love. And you see, when we don't understand the same word the same way, we get things a little off. Here's why logos is so important, right? Because when John begins his gospel, his story of Jesus, he gives us this word. In the beginning, the word, the logos already existed. The logos was with God and the logos was God. So the Logos became human and made his home among us. He was full of grace and truth, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You see, the word here is not the scripture, it's the Savior, the same one who existed before the creation of the world, and in him and through him and for him in his glory was all things made. And so what we find is that the word, the Logos, was there in the beginning, so this is the living personified word of God. And here's where this matters. Because if we take this same word over to Hebrews chapter 4, when the author of Hebrews is trying to get, to get us to understand the power of the word, we need to replace a few words here. For the logos of God is alive and powerful. And we would better translate this, he. He. He is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cut between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Next he exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And verse 13 helps shed context on why we would translate it that way. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Not just hidden from his word, but hidden from God himself. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he is the one to whom we are all accountable. God is still alive. Jesus, the word, the living word of God is still active. He's still alive. He's still powerful. He's still at work in us. And we access that power. We have that power through the Holy Spirit as we receive him into our lives. Here's why this is important. Because the word of the cross, the logos of the cross, is foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are finding salvation, he is the power of God. The power of God right here to separate and to pull apart and to get into us. Now there's another word that the Greeks used for word, graphe. Graphe. Think graphic or think autograph it's the written word of god here's when paul writing again to his understudy timothy he says this you have been taught the holy graphes scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in christ jesus let me just tell you one of the things i love about the bible is that i find jesus there it's not the only place i find him i found jesus through his church through his people through their encouragement, through their challenge, through their direction, through their prayer, through their love. I find the thumbprint of God over all of His creation, but I consistently find Jesus here in the pages of His graphe. Every page, I find him there every day. And He goes on, says, All graphe, all the scripture, is inspired by God. Now, this word inspired means breathed out, that God has breathed out His scripture. He's exhaling his word for us. It's the inspired breath of God. If you've ever breathed on a mirror and you see the mirror fog up the glass, this is the fog of God's breath for us. But there's a clear message written in the glass. It's the very breath of God spoken out for us. Useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. And God uses this scripture to prepare and equip all of his people to do every good work, which, by the way, he prepared in advance for us to do. So we have the living logos and we have the written graphe and then we have the rema of God, the spoken word of God. So when Paul writing to the church at Ephesus is telling them, when The the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians are having trouble getting along, and they're trying to figure that out. And then together, they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do with the new people coming to us? And the world out there, and says, well, let me remind you, your enemy is not the other person. They are your mission, not your enemy. Your enemy is against the evil forces in this world, the unseen forces in the heavenly realms. So that's your enemy. That's where you got to guard yourself against. And he tells them, armor up against that enemy. Because there's a battle raging all around you, heavenly battle, angels and demons fighting, and it's happening right here, and you don't necessarily see it, but you've got to engage with this, and you've got to be protected from it. So he tells them to armor up, and in that armor, he gives them this, put on salvation as your helmet, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. Our defense is actually, this is an offensive weapon, you don't just block with the sword, you attack with the sword. So when the enemy is coming to attack you, you attack back with the word of God. This is exactly what Jesus did in the desert when he was tempted and he spoke out God's word. When Satan came to tempt him, he said, no, 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 no. I got the word of God. And it is written in the graphes and I am Ramos speaking it out to you now. Hell, get the hell out of here. Go back to the hell where you belong. When the enemy comes at us, friends, this is how we do battle. The enemy wants gonna he's gonna wanna tell you, oh, you're no good, oh you sinned again, oh you, you certainly can't be part of what God's up to. No 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 when you know his word, you know that's a lie. You know first John one nine says, Yo, okay, I've sinned, I know that, but I've confessed it to the forgiver and I am now forgiven. And so the enemy has no power over me. I know when he comes and he's tempting me, he's tempting me towards that. It's like, oh yeah, you're so different. You're so unique. Nobody else sins the way you do. No, that's a lie. First Corinthians 10, 13 tells me that we are all in this together. There's a common thread to the way we sin. And when we're faced with that temptation, God gives us a way out so that we can stand up under it. Okay, so how do I stand up under it? How do I speak God's word? Oh, well, I know that in Psalm 119, the psalmist tells us we hide God's word in our heart so that we might not sin against him, so that we might know the truth, and Jesus tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I hide His word in my heart. I speak it out. I have the grafe there. I hide it here and I rhema it there. And the Logos gives me power to defend against Satan. So hell, get out. I'm all right with God, right? Like, church, that's what we do. And it's never alone. We do this for one another. We speak his truth over one another, into one another. We give courage to one another. We give comfort to one another. We give instruction to one another. We give guidance to one another. We speak prayers, not empty prayers, but biblical prayers over one another. We don't just speak empty encouragement. We speak the Bible into one another. This is what we do, because this is the word of God. See, that's why this is so powerful. And this has gotta be the kind of place where we are. So it's not enough that we just know this. It's not enough that we just own one of these and that we have some information about it. We've gotta move to allow it to have that powerful place of transforming us and changing us. See, we've gotta move from just mere information to allow the word of God to transform us. But the pathway, yeah some of you know what's coming. The pathway from information to transformation is application. Now I'm only going to use one of these because I don't want to soak our stage, but you know what happens there. Put that in and there's something that happens. There's a reaction that happens. That when we allow the catalyst of application to take place in our lives, when we say what God says I'll do, I'll trust and obey because I know there's no other way. There's a transformative moment there that erupts with power. Now you want to see Is just, go, just buy yourself one of these, get yourself a whole bunch of Mentos, throw them in, close the lid, slam it down. You'll see the powerful work of God on display there, right? I would've done that, but some of you would've been mad because you'd have been messy. So here's what we gotta do. We know it's natural for us to wrestle with application. We know it's natural for us to resist doing what God says when he says, and we see that in the scripture. But let me just tell you, the longer you resist, the more you're gonna miss. I think how much better it had been for Jonah if he'd have just said yes in the first place. I don't think whale vomit was a great part of his story. <laughs> Friends, our natural tendency is that we want to apply God's word in very safe and comfortable ways that leave us largely unchanged. We guard ourselves from God instead of giving ourselves to him. We guard our schedules, we guard our families. Um May my kids go off to college and university and become great, great business people, but oh, I don't know about missions. I don't know about church work. Is that, can you really make a living doing that? Is that really gonna be safe for you go overseas? We guard our finances, we guard our food, we guard our bellies, we guard our vices, we guard our ideologies, we guard our preferences and what we want, and we don't really submit it to God. But when we submit those things to God, and listen, I know because I'm a chief offender here. And it's a natural part of the faith that we have to wrestle against those things to give ourselves over to him. But if we will simply practice immediate, consistent obedience, that when we encounter what the Bible says, what God is speaking to us, we say yes and we do it, we find it changing our lives. See, friend, it's not enough to say the Bible's reliable. Will you actually rely on it? It's not enough to say the Bible is trustworthy if you're not actually trusting it. So will you? Will you determine to do God's will when you find it here? Whatever his will may be for you. Will you determine ahead of time to obey however crazy obedience might look? Friend, if you'll come to this and you will resolve ahead of time, that what God says you will do. Well, that's the heart of life-changing Bible engagement. And when you do that, it's not always easy, but I guarantee it's always better. It's always better. It's always better. And when you engage the Bible that way, well, friend, I guarantee the Bible will change your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your word alive and active and written and spoken and your power for us. And you did not leave us to just navigate this world on our own. You didn't just give us a self-help book. But God, it is your breath spoken to us. The, The breath of life to those who need spiritual CPR who are dying. God, may we inhale your words as you breathe them out to us. May we speak them over one another. May we speak them in a way that gives hope and truth and grace and direction to a dark world. And God, may we allow them to fill us and change us and transform us. And as we do, may we find you there daily. Find you there in the pages alive and active in our lives. And may we speak of you for all eternity of your glory and your praise. Amen.